Hello, 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 my fact friends and fiends. Happy holidays to everyone who's listening in. We very much appreciate you joining us week after week. And this week, I had planned to bring you an episode a brand new episode that I realized far too late. I've already done. Bananas, right? Actually, no one's surprised. It was bound to happen. Granted, since then, my anecdotal forensic knowledge has grown, such as learning relevant things like teeth can't burn until 1500 degrees Fahrenheit or, for everyone else in the world, 815 degrees Celsius which is hugely relevant to the story I'm going to bring you. Now, I know everyone spends the holiday season wondering about John Bonet, etc., and we've already covered that entire scenario previously, so rather than rehash that case, go back and listen to our two-part episode about not only the case, but what it was like growing up in the aftermath. We're going to jump into the case that keeps me awake at night after too much eggnog substitute. Curse that spicy milk intolerance. We are taking a trip back not only in actual time, but in the life of talking about facts. Please tweet, Insta, email, whatever your thoughts are. And if you are in a holiday mood, shoot us a review on the podcast platform you listen on. That'd be really swell. Without further ado, The Missing Solder Children. Well, welcome back to Let's Talk About the Facts, a podcast about cold cases, weird phenomena, apparently discussing historical inaccuracies, and then things I felt like researching. And I am your captain on this quality Christmas crime cruise ship. Hold on to your hats, ladies and gentlemen, because this is the wildest ride in the North Pole. As always, we have a pal with us for the adventure, and I have brought along... My pal, JJ. Oh, hello. And of course, JJ has no idea what's about to go down, as most guests don't. <laughs> so get a red and green to buckle in with her as we take this merry trip down Murder Lane, candy cane style. So JJ, tell us about yourself. Uh, well, I am a writer, as, as so many people are, um, and as so many writers have not, I have not quit my day job, <laughs> but <Woo>! I, <laughs> I am very lucky to uh, do something I find very creatively fulfilling as a day job. I am a professional dungeon master. I run Dungeons and Dragons games for uh, school-aged children, so it's nice. been a very good time. I'm like, can I get in on that? Like, I'll, <laughs> I'll play with some eight-year-olds. They're great. They... They say the wildest things. <laughs> I honestly, yeah, I can believe that 100%. This episode is The Missing Solder Children. You know this one? Uh, I know so many missing children cases. I don't think so. <gasps> Excellent. Get ready. All right. So we're going to put away the smiles for a bit because we're going to discuss the troubling issues of the year that this story happened. And... Yeah, so we're going to give the context of that year. And I tried to pick out, like, major things, but there was so much going on. It was just bullshit after bullshit after bullshit. Kind of like now. Similar, similar yeah, time in, yeah, in history. <laughs> yeah, because we are in 1945. And if no one knows, that is the end of World War II. And the effects of that war still haunt us today. And we have no idea what the effects of this war on terror will have on us 
on the future of this country, not to mention the world, and the historical ramifications. So the United States participated in World War II for only three years and eight months. The Civil War was only four years. Does hearing only sound strange to you? <laughs> because I hope so. We have been in the war on terror slash the war in Afghanistan for 19 years and one month as of this recording. And I'll let that sink in for you. But yes, that is the longest that we have participated in anything. Surpassing Vietnam, which was 17 years and four months. Yeah, there are adult human people who pay pay taxes. (laughs) Yeah. Who pay taxes and have never lived (sighs) when we weren't in war. Depressing. Yep. But in 1945, FDR is sworn in for his fourth term as president, the only president to have won four elections, to have served three terms. And after him, like the two term law went into effect, he would be succeeded by Harry Truman after he passes away suddenly in April of 1945. And the Battle of Iwo Jima takes place. And we discussed this a few episodes back where one of the Marines in the famous raising of the flag photo, which is at the Marine Memorial that's carved, um, a heroic Native American soldier by the name of Ira Hayes is one of those soldiers. Rodgers and Hammerstein's Carousel, a musical play based on Ferenc Molnar's uh, Lillian, he's a Hungarian uh, playwright, opens on Broadway, and it becomes their second long-running stage classic. But instead of Budapest, like the original, it it takes place on a main coastline. Then we have, like, you know, Hitler murdering himself, but who cares about him? Uh, Right on from that. Yeah, I was like, No screen time. No screen time. (laughs) (laughs) No screen time for Hitler. I see what you did there. Uh, Interpol, which was headquartered in Berlin, effectively ceased to exist, but you know it still exists. It was recreated June 3rd of 1946. Oh, they just took a break. (laughs) Yeah, but I think they, like, entirely recreated it. I don't know. Don't ask me about the history of Interpol. That'll be another episode. (laughs) August 6th would be the atomic bombing of Hiroshima. And just because I know a lot of people don't understand the magnitude of what happened... Because I feel like one of those, it's glazed over again in history. A United States Boeing B-29 Super Fortress drops a uranium-235 atomic bomb, codenamed Little Boy, on the Japanese city of Hiroshima at 8.15 a.m. local time. It resulted between 90,000 and 146,000 deaths. I think about this all the time. Civilians, too. This yeah. is like a yeah, it was ter- just... terrible thing. Yeah. And then on August 9th, three days later, the United States B-29 Boxcar drops a plutonium-293 atomic bomb, codenamed Fat Man, on the Japanese city of Nagasaki at 11.02 a.m. local time, resulting between 39,000 and 80,000 deaths. And the fact that there's like a 50,000 discrepancy boggles me. Yeah. 
So, yeah, 1945. We did that. Yikes. October 23rd, Jackie Robinson signs a contract with the Montreal Royals ball team. Yeah! I don't know. I love Jackie Robinson. So anytime something pops up. Just a a little good news. Yeah, I was like, we got to find something great. And then uh, Charles de Gaulle is unanimously elected president of France by the provisional government. Because, you know, France got uh, shredded. So, and then on Christmas Eve, our case today is noted. Like, if you're like, big events, this is noted. So, are you ready? I am ready. You buckled up. Christmas Eve. Yeah, it's Christmas Eve. You're going to put on your Santa hat. You're going to put on your ho-ho pants. You're going to get out your cookies and milk. You're going to put on your alarm system. (laughs) should turn it off, if anything. Well, no. No, That's how you end up with crimes. Yeah, you don't turn off that alarm system. You get your taser out, and you're going to sit here and listen to this radio play. No, I'm kidding. Um, Anyway, so the story begins. It has been 75 years this year, and this case still holds up as one of the most, most, sorry, more. John Bonet kind of stole that one, but... It holds up as one of the more well-known Christmas Eve horror stories that kids like to tell to one another. Um, And thanks to technology, it's at anyone's fingertips to look up the billboard of grainy images, five children dark-haired and solemn-eyed with their names and ages. Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, Jenny, 8, and Betty, 5. Written beneath clearly... And usually attached with some sort of theory of what happened to them. But the truth is, no one really knows what happened to the five missing solder children from Fayetteville, West Virginia. So Fayetteville was and is a small town, much like the one I described earlier. <laughs> everyone knew everyone, and business was everybody's business. And what was a little odd about this case is that no one really could agree or figure out what they thought happened to those children, and small-town hive minds tend to settle on that kind of thing. But here are the facts, and so you can judge for yourself. So we start with George Sauter, the father. He was born with the name Giorgio Sadu in Tula, Sardinia, Italy in 1895. He emigrated to the United States when he was 13 with an older brother that older brother made a u-turn as soon as they cleared customs at ellis island he never really talked much about why he had left his homeland but you know knowing what we know now about italy maybe he was like it's a little rough um also you know it's not that it's not that far from world war one so solder eventually found work um, on the railroads in Pennsylvania. But after a few years, he decided to move down to West Virginia and found work as a driver in Smithers. He was able to start his own trucking company years later, and he would, like, first haul dirt for construction sites, but then would haul coal because West Virginia is big in that coal industry, (laughs) especially at the time. 
Um, George would meet his wife, Jenny Cipriani. She was a storekeeper's daughter in Smithers and had also immigrated from Italy in her childhood. So like two peas in a pod, they married, and then they settled outside near by Fayetteville, which had a population of Italian immigrants, and they lived in a two-story timber frame house um, about two miles north of the town. So... In 1923, they had the first of their 10 children. Oh, my God. Could you imagine? 10 children. I can't even deal with one. I guess that's how they did it back then and also in West Virginia. (laughs) But I mean, like, what a flex. Be like, ooh, check out how virile I am. My my family is from West Virginia, so no, no hate there. But No joke lot of lot of large families <laughs> out I'm in just the, gonna uh, throw down boonies. John Denver made music specifically for you <laughs> and I'm swiping it <laughs> but so bonkers that you don't know this one um I know yeah <laughs> now, now, I, now I feel bad <laughs> don't feel bad this happened in 1945 I don't know how to tell you this but you weren't alive not for some time. Yeah, I know. It's like this is a BJJ before JJ. Let's see, where was I? I gotta find it on my page. Oh, back to the first of their ten children. Okay, so George's business prospered, as businesses can do. I don't know them, but you know, hey. <laughs> and then they became one of the most respected. Middle fat middle class families around, as a local official would describe them. George did have strong opinions and was like, he wasn't shy about it. He was, he had deep, deep opposing views about Benito Mussolini, which we got to stand a legend there. Like, George, you tell him because he was anti fascism before it was cool. Antifa, look how cool it is look how old it is and also for anyone who does not know what fascism is and why it's thrown around so carelessly in regards to 45 let me give you a simple definition fascism is a form of far-right authoritarian ultra nationalism characterized by dictatorial power forcible suppression of opposition and strong regimentation of society and of the the economy which came to prominence in the early 20th century Europe and early 21st century United States. But also, if you don't know who Mussolini is, that is something you should probably rectify fairly quickly. (laughs) Urgent urgent knowledge to have. It kind of is. Like, Mussolini founded the fascist party in Italy, which was organized right-wing groups all coming together in a single force which is what we're dealing with right now yeah you're you're asking people to uh, learn from history How dare. something that the uh, human race is notoriously unfond of i i must not be human because i'm like this is what i do this is why i have this podcast that's why i love history yeah it's so great to watch everybody yeah. else fuck up <laughs> Uh, They don't have stupid bitch moments. They have fucking disasters. Uh, The fascist movement, Mussolini style, 
proclaimed opposition to social class discrimination and supported national sentiments. And Mussolini hoped to raise Italy to the levels of its great Roman past. But um, I don't know how to tell him how Rome ended, but it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't great. See, they just won't, they won't learn from the past. I know. Not like, now and not ever. You know what's funny is I feel like I could see 45 totally playing a fiddle while DC burned. You think he's that talented? No. But neither was Nero. <laughs> Oh, even worse. Yeah. I have always just assumed that Nero was good at playing the fiddle, and I don't I don't know why that is. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I can play the fiddle. It's just the quality of talent that you're looking at. But I have not made my horse a senator yet, and that's on my list of things to do. <laughs> First, get a horse. But back to Mussolini. <laughs> a lot of a lot of very like nuanced jokes there. <laughs> Uh, he did become the Italian, quote, prime minister in tw- 1922. Almost just was like, back in 22. <laughs> you mean in two years? Uh, <laughs> but really, he was a dictator. And he was in charge in World War II. Was he helpful? No. Did he help the economy, as so many ask these days? No. Did he get offed by the end of World War II? Yes. <laughs> it's a great read. Like, you'll have a good time. So, anyway, the last of the Sauter children, Sylvia, was born in 1943. So, it took her 20 years to have 10 kids. Good on her. I mean, that's about the rate you would want to do it. I no. would adopt. Yeah. Um, I just feel like my body wouldn't take it. Pros and cons of being constantly pregnant versus constantly having a toddler. I don't know. I don't. I don't know what's worse. (laughs) I used to work for Cracker Barrel, and one time I waited on the Duggars, and that was the best birth control. Oh, man. I've ever experienced. I can't imagine. They have like 20 kids. It felt like it. <laughs> um, but, okay, so Joe had left home to serve in the military by the time Sylvia is born. He was serving um, in World War II because it's 1943 at the time Sylvia is born. So she is two at the time of this party. That's not a party. <laughs> <laughs> the following year, 1944, wait. Yeah, I think that's when that happened. Mussolini was deposed and executed. And George is probably like, fucking told you. Cracking the champagne. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But his criticism of the late dictator did leave some hard feelings. What? But honestly, like, those people with the hard feelings need to get wrecked. Okay. Oh, like, between him and the other the other immigrants in town. Yeah. Oh, I hadn't considered that. Oh, no. But, like, they should go get fucked because... Because he was right. Yeah. Empirically speaking, yeah. (laughs) Not only was he right, but Mussolini's dead. And, like, you're in America. Like, if you've got those hard of feelings, go back. Like, if you really feel like that guy was right, what's your problem? Like, do you just hate people? Anyway... (laughs) 
racist. So the Sodders celebrate Christmas Eve on 1945. So Marion, the oldest daughter, she had been working at a dime store in downtown Fayetteville. And she surprised three of her younger sisters, so Martha 12, Jenny 8, and Betty 5, with new toys that she had bought for them um, that were their gifts, you know? And so those yeah. younger children were so excited, they asked their mother if they could stay up past what would have been their usual bedtime. So at 10 p.m., Jenny tells them they could stay up a little later. I am boggled by the fact that they could stay up till 10. <laughs> I struggle with that. <laughs> because if I, like when I was a kid, my parents put were like, get in bed at 8. And I, I really think that was more for them than for me. Well, especially on, I mean, I don't know how much uh, the... the solders in 1945 are doing in terms of santa antics on christmas eve but i feel like i yeah i feel like i always had to go to bed at like 7 p.m on christmas eve because my parents had so much to do and they just wanted to go to sleep at their normal bedtime of 9 p.m oh my gosh my parents didn't have like that early of a bedtime but they put us to bed at a certain time so they could just have peace (laughs) also valid like but, I mean, I was so cool as a kid. <laughs> Didn't you want to hang out with me all the time? No. <laughs> uh, okay, so 10 p.m., she lets them stay up, and but only as long as Maurice and Louis, 14 and I, respectively, were still up. And they had to put the cows in and feed the chickens before going to bed. Could you imagine doing that in the dark? I would be horrified. But 1945 was a different time. They didn't even know serial killers existed. Uh, That is true. Yeah, they had no idea. George and the two oldest boys, John and George Jr., who had spent the day working with their father, were already asleep. I get that. Like, they were probably really tired. And there's a lot of coal to give out to those nasty kids. And he had to drive it. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, they're probably like, yes, please. I would love some coal. It is cold. I want it. Um, so Jenny would like, you know, she reminded everyone the shit they had to do. And then she takes Sylvia, who's two, upstairs with her. And then they all they go to bed. So Sylvia is sleeping in the parents' room at the time. The phone rings at 1230 a.m. And Jenny wakes up. And she goes downstairs to answer it. The caller is a woman whose voice she doesn't know. And she asks for a name she also doesn't know. And then there's the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. Like, you know, party. Yeah. Uh, Jenny tells the caller that she's got the wrong number. And she remembers later that the woman had a strange laugh. Uh, Jenny hung up and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn. Two things the children normally did when they were up later than Jenny or George. Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so Jenny assumed that the others who had stayed up a bit later had just gone back to the attic where they slept. Which, attic? That's so crazy. Ten kids. Yeah, when you have 10. I, I was I was like 
how many bedrooms do they have in this house? I know. I was like, you got to get some, some in the parents' room. Got to get some in the attic. Family planning, man. But she closed the curtains, turned out the lights, and went to bed. At about 1 a.m., she was awakened again. How did she go to sleep so fast? I need to know her method. Um, she was awakened by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. After hearing nothing further, she just went back to sleep. And that makes sense. 1945, once again, they're not going to think anything nefarious. Um, yeah. I don't know. I, I can Roof see... Roof sounds... That, that's one of the things that alarms me. I guess I probably also wouldn't because, like, investigate if I heard a sound on the roof. Because they probably... She's probably thinking, oh, maybe something from the tree, like, fell, like a branch. Yeah. So she didn't hear two things. It was like, oh, was that a branch? We'll look at it in the morning. I'm cold. It's one o'clock. I've already been woken up twice. <laughs> yeah. If I go back to sleep, it won't kill me. Um, that's basically how I handle everything. It's been, me too, and it's been true thus far in my life. I have not been murdered in my sleep yet. Yeah, honestly, Jenny, I feel you. She's doing reasonable things here. Um, after about another half hour, she wakes up again, and I'm like, this poor woman, but she smells smoke. So she gets up, and she found that the George... The George, the room that George used for his office for the business he has was on fire and the telephone line in the around the telephone line in the fuse box. So Jenny goes and wakes him up and he gets he wakes up the older sons, both parents and four of their children. So Sylvia, who was with her, Marion, John and George Jr. escaped the house. And so they're trying to yell to the children upstairs but there's no response. They could not go up there because the stairway itself was already lit. Oh, no. And John said in his first police interview after the fire that he went to the attic to alert the siblings sleeping there. But later he changed his story, saying that he only called up there and did not actually see them. So the phone didn't work. And Marion ran to a neighbor's to call the fire department. There was also a driver on a nearby road who saw the flames and he went to a nearby tavern. But they were two, they were both unsuccessful either because they could not reach the operator or because the phone was broken. But the neighbor or the motorist were eventually successful. Um, the motorist may have found another phone in the center of town, which amazing. Um, so, but George barefoot climbed the wall and broke open a window in the attic and he cut his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to the attic to rescue the other children, but it wasn't in its usual spot resting against the house and it couldn't be found anywhere. A water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the fire was frozen solid. George then tried to pull both of the trucks that he used for his business up to the house and then use them to climb to the attic window, but neither of them would start despite having worked perfectly previous 
um, during like the day before because now it's tomorrow. Um, so frustrated, the six otters who had escaped, no, it's, yeah, six otters who had escaped had no choice but just to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. They had to assume the other five children had perished in the blaze. The fire department, low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other, did not respond until later that morning. Chief F.J. Morris said the next day that the already slow response was further hampered by his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he wait until someone who could drive was available. Oh, he just didn't know how to do it? Yeah. I thought you were going to say it had also been sabotaged. I was going to lose my mind. I was like, what is going on here? Yeah, I know, right? But also, like, I don't know. It's a truck. Just drive it. Yeah, it's an emergency. <laughs> like, that's your job. Why are you with the chief? Like, that one doesn't sit right with me. That is so weird now that I'm thinking about it. Like, how are you the chief if you can't drive the mobile? If you can't drive the fire truck. Uh, the firefighters, one of whom was a brother of Jenny's, could do little but look through the ashes that were left of the solder's basement. Left in, in the solder's basement. At 10 a.m., Morris told the solder's that they had not found any bones, as might have been expected if the other children had been in the house as it burned. According to another account, they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs, but chose not to tell the family. It has also been I, noted. It doesn't, doesn't make a ton of sense to me that they would find organs. But yeah, no, none like, at all. <laughs> um, it has been noted by modern fire professionals that their search was cursory at best, but Morris believed the fire or the five children unaccounted for had died in the fire suggesting that it had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely hmm hmm so those are the initial facts we have other sections it's oddities other oddities excavation <laughs> and where we are today but so far these initial facts what are you thinking um so part of me when when I'm like interpreting like unsolved crimes, true crime stuff, I do like always want to go with the simplest solution, which in this case would be that they were in the house and they did just burn in the fire. Terrible, but like seems plausible. Um I don't I don't like how hot does a fire have to be to burn up bones? I feel so like much it, hotter than a house yeah, fire. Yeah, yeah. That's that's my my initial there are too many things that don't ring true. You know yeah. what I mean? It's weird. The two trucks uh, don't work. The, the ladder both is the trucks missing. don't work. Yeah. Uh, the noise on the roof. The phone call. Um, it's like one too many things. Oh. I, 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 <laughs> I, there are two oddity sections. I can't, can't yeah. wait to hear them. Yeah, like, so I do tend to be like okay i'm gonna try to dismiss as much as i possibly can and go for the simple solution um because i think if you do like investigate every little weird thing you can get hung up on details but 
I feel like fire isn't hot enough is like where the line is drawn there. Yeah, I think because you said the simplest thing is, is the fire hot enough to back up his conclusion? I will answer that for you at a later moment. I forgot where I wrote it. (laughs) So first oddity. So in October, still 1945, a visiting life insurance salesman after George was like, nah, dude, I'm good. Um, He warned George that his house would go up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed, attributing this to the dirty remarks that he'd been making about Mussolini, who was dead. Um, Also, just bad salesmanship. (laughs) Oh, I know, right? Like, love it. And then there was another visitor to the house um, who was looking for work, but he went around back and warned George that a pair of fuse boxes would cause a fire someday. And George was confused because he had just had the house rewired when an electric stove was installed and the local electric company had said afterwards that it was safe. So in the weeks before Christmas that year, George's older sons had also noticed a strange car parked on the main highway through town, its occupants watching the younger Sauter children when they returned home from school. So, Fire Chief Morris, who couldn't drive a fire mobile, told George to leave the site undisturbed so that the state fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after four days, George and his wife could not take that site any longer. Like, he couldn't do it. And honestly, four days. How long are you going to make this man wait? Yeah. Like, what, did you have big stuff going on in Fayetteville, West Virginia? (sighs) So he bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it into a memorial garden for the lost children. The Hmm. local coroner convened an inquest the next day, which held that the fire was an accident caused by, quote, faulty wiring. Among the jurors was the man who threatened George that his house would be burned down and his children destroyed in retribution for his anti-Mussolini remarks. Huh. This dude just lives in West Virginia. Like, <laughs> But death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th. The newspaper contradicted itself, though, saying that all bodies had been found. But later in the same story, it just said part of only one body was recovered. But we know that no bodies were recovered. <laughs> And George and Jenny were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral on January 2nd of 1946, though the surviving children did. And honestly, I don't find that weird at all. I think that if you lose five children at once, yeah, especially, yeah. like, almost all of your youngest children, yeah, that's not weird to me. So, no, not at all, I don't think other oddities not long afterward they began to rebuild their lives um but then they started to question all of the quote official findings about the fire they like wondered why 
if it was caused by this electrical issue, this faulty wiring, even though it had been checked out by the, like, the electrician's union and all of that, how the family's Christmas lights had remained on through the fire in the early stages when the power should have gone out. And then they found the ladder that was missing from the side of the house on the night of the fire. It was at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away. Okay, that's weird. Mm-hmm. As if it had been removed from the house. 75 feet is a pretty far distance. Yeah. Then a telephone repairman, I have to say, he came in clutch right now. He told the Sodders that the house's phone line had not been burned through the fire. And actually, it had been cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up a pole and reach out two feet away from that pole to cut it. And a man who the neighbors had seen who was stealing a block and tackle from the property, which I don't know what that is, but I like to think it's a cinder block and then like a tackle box, like for fishing. Uh That's what I'm picturing. And I don't want it to be anything else. (laughs) A cinder block is going to change my life. Um, The. Apparently he was identified and arrested. He admitted to the theft and he claimed that he had been the one who quote, cut the phone line, thinking it was the power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. However, no record identifying the suspect exists and why he would have wanted to cut any utility lines of the solder house to begin with. Yeah, being like, I was trying to cut the power line is not an explanation. <laughs> like, that's bananas. It's still creepy and illegal, I assume. Yeah. Because Jenny says in 1968, if he had cut the power line, they would have all made it out alive. Because, Mm -hmm. well, honestly, the fire would never have allegedly started then. Yeah. Um, Jenny also had trouble accepting Morris's belief of the children having been burned completely in the fire. Because even I, like, even we were like, that's bananas. Um, So... Many of the household appliances had been found still recognizable in the ash, along with fragments of the tin roof. And she contrasted the results of it, the fire, with a newspaper account of a similar house fire that she read about at the same time that killed a family of seven. And skeletal remains of all victims were reported to have been found in that case. So she did an experiment of her own. And because, you know, they lived on a farm, she took some of the small piles of animal bones to see if they would be completely incinerated. And nope, never were. So she goes to a local crematorium and speaks with an employee, which I thought was brilliant of her. And she asked um, to be like contacted when they got back to her and Human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Translate that to 1,090 degrees Celsius for two hours, far longer and hotter than the house fire could have ever been. So 
That's that if for me, that is the biggest red flag here. So the Sodders trucks, the failure was also considered. So George believed they had been tampered with, perhaps by the same man who had like stolen the block and tackle and the phone line and everything. One of his so- the ladder. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> did all of the did all the naughties. Um, one of his sons-in-law told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come to believe that the they might have in haste flooded the engines. I could buy that if it was one truck, but not both. It's not... I don't think they would have flooded both engines. Yeah. It, the fact that it's two trucks just makes it so much harder. Because, like, they're not going to spontaneously fail at the same time in an emergency, you know? like Yeah. It's it's too suspicious. Like, like, I would get it if one of them didn't start because they flooded the engine. But both? No. I'm sorry. That's too suspicious. With everything yeah. else going on, too, that just doesn't... And and again, they were only trying to start the trucks because their ladder was missing. (laughs) Yeah, and so why would that be a thing, like, you know? Um, So some some accounts have suggested the wrong number phone call to the solder house that woke Jenny up initially might have also somehow been connected and the disappearance of the children. Um, but investigators apparently located the woman who had made the call and she uh, somehow convinced them that it had been a wrong number on her part. It's just a creepy laugher and that's not her fault. I don't know about that one. (laughs) The timing is too specific to me. Yeah, it is weird, but that's the, that's the thing when I'm talking about like coincidences, like. Maybe one thing can be a coincidence. Like, maybe they got a wrong number phone call. Yeah. But too many things right now. Yeah. So, to the excavation. So, George did not wait of sightings to come in. Sometimes he made them himself. After seeing a girl in a magazine, um, she was in a picture of a young ballet dancer in New York City who looked like one of his missing girls. Um, he drove all the way to the girls' school where he repeatedly demanded to see the girl himself, but they refused. He also tried to interest the FBI in the investigation, what he considered a kidnapping. Um, but of course, guess who's the director of the FBI at the time? I don't know. J. Edgar Hoover. Of course. <laughs> personally responded to his letters although I would like to be of service he wrote the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau like what if the local authorities requested the bureau's assistance he could do something about it, but Fayetteville police and departments were like, nah. But there's a way around that. Like, you can be like, I am the family. These are my missing children. They're not doing it. Will you help? 
They can do that. That's their fucking job. <laughs> anyway, I'm, you know, whatever. Get some help here. Oh. Yeah. But it's all frustrating enough that the um the local officials didn't want to do anything, right? Like you didn't do a very good search. Yeah. You, you said that you found them all when you didn't find them all. What's going on? Yeah. There was this case um, that actually has like stuck with me since I uh, read about it because the cold case investigator who came in and solved it. She, oh, she was amazing. But I believe it was her name is Jessica Howe. And she had gone missing and they didn't do anything locally. And the stepdad was like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm calling the FBI. I'm calling everybody. And it took so long. And the cold case detective came in and was able to solve the case, thankfully. And she was so fantastic. She was like, I'm going to I'm going to take all the case files. I'm going to I'm going to run this down. And um found out that it was actually the uncle Ugh. who did it. Maybe it wasn't. That Maybe is it was so her bio sad. dad. But the fact that like if the police had done something in the time frame that she her parents are like do something, do something, do something, she would have been found alive. Terrible. Yeah. It's like the worst possible story. Maybe I'll cover that one. I don't know. I tend to cover unsolved things, but Maybe I'll cover that one just in a police expose. <gasps> but okay, back to um, George. So 1949 in August, he was able to persuade a DC pathologist named Dr. Oscar Hunter, which I think it's great that a pathologist has the last name Hunter because <laughs> that's funny to me. Um, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site, which means that he would, he agreed to tear up the garden that they made. Um, after a very thorough search, there were artifacts, including, um, a dictionary that belonged to the children and some coins found. There were several small bone fragments unearthed determined to have been human vertebrae. But here's the thing. The bone fragments, they're sent to a specialist at the Smithsonian. His name is Marshall T. Newman. They are confirmed to be lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person. And basically, there's a way to tell the age because of a certain point of fusion. And the top limit of age should be about 22 because of a certain point of fusion in those bones. Um they normally fuse about 23. Mm -hmm. So the age range is about 16 or 17 to 22. Um, and it's not very likely that these bones were from any of the missing children since the oldest Maurice had been 14 at the time. Although it's possible that the vertebrae of a boy, his age sometimes were advanced enough to appear at the lower end of the range, it's unlikely. This is all so weird again, though, because, like, you have a... You, now you have a dictionary that didn't burn up. Yeah. And you have, like, a couple bones. Where did the bones come from? Like, even if... 
even if they did belong to one of the kids, like, where are the rest of the bones? Yeah. <laughs> Newman added that the bones showed no sign of exposure to flame. He agreed that it was very strange that these bones were the only ones found, since a wood fire of such short duration should have left full skeletons of all children behind. The report concluded that the vertebrae instead most likely had come from the dirt that George had bulldozed um, over the site. So Tinsley supposedly concerned, like confirmed. Uh, did I? Do we know who Tinsley is? I don't know. It was, it was supposedly confirmed that the fragments had come from a cemetery near Mount Hope, but they couldn't explain why they had been taken from there or how they came to be at the fire site. But the Smithsonian returned the fragments to George um, the next month, which amazing turnaround. And <laughs> it's true. The current location of them are unknown, most likely in my head the type of person that we have come to know him to be i bet you he wouldn't bury them at the cemetery um, the respectful thing to do yeah and i think that's what he did like privately buried them so nobody would like look them up just in case uh so the investigation and its findings finally attracted attention the west virginia west virginia legislature held two hearings on the case in 1950 however governor Oakie l patterson that sounds like a governor of west virginia it really does um, and the state police superintendent w.e burchett told the Saunders that the case was hopeless and closed it at the state level the FBI finally decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but it dropped the case after two years because there were no fruitful leads. What the fuck? Yeah, because you didn't do anything five years ago. So, where we are today? Well, I would be remiss to not tell you the other options that George did to try to find out what happened to his children. Um, so the official efforts came to a close. They did not give up hope. They put flyers printed up with pictures of the children. They offered a 5,000 reward soon to be 10,000 for information that would have settled the case of even one child in 1952. They put up a billboard at the site of the house and along uh, and another one along U.S. Route 60 near Anstead with the same information. And it would be in time become a landmark for traffic through Fayetteville on U.S. Route 19, uh, today's State Route 16. Because I don't know why that made the difference, but it got its road changed. I don't know how roads work. Nobody uh, does. Yeah, it seems like just a clusterfuck it's like women's sizes Who knows? they're all they're all different yeah there there's no rhyme or reason they just put a number and hope for the best um the family's efforts did bring another report citing a reported sighting of the children after the fire so ida crutchfield 
a woman who ran a Charleston hotel. She claimed to have seen the children approximately a week after the incident. She said she didn't remember the exact date, but they had come in around midnight with two men and two women, and Mm. they all appeared to be of Italian extraction. I don't know why it was phrased that way, but what a move. (laughs) When she tried to talk to the children... Uh, one of the men gave her like the most hostile look and then he turned around and began speaking rapidly in Italian and immediately the whole party stopped talking to her. She recalled that they left uh, the hotel early next morning. Investigators do not know um, if her story is credible. They don't consider it credible as she only first saw the photos of the killed the children the children two years after the fire and five years before she came forward i don't know if that's fair because like what's the point of putting photos out if you <laughs> yeah if you're gonna be like well there's no way you could recognize them yeah from photos but like also yeah we put photos out to see if anyone recognizes them you recognize them i don't believe you i think that's an interesting lead but Whatever. So George followed up on leads, like, on his own. And he would travel to areas where tips had come from. So, for example, there was a a woman in St. Louis. uh, She claimed that Martha was being held in a convent there. And a bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two other people making, like, incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia. Um, but none of those proved to be significant when George later heard that a relative of Jenny's in Florida had children that looked similar to his own that relative had to prove the children were theirs before George was satisfied and honestly I get it like that would be wild but I mean he's I I also get it yeah he's a grief stricken man and you know what if my brother like lost his kids and I had kids that looked similar and he came to me and was like, prove it. I'd be like, here, here's everything. Yeah. Not because like I'm upset with him, but because I understand you're holding onto whatever hope you have. Yeah. You just, you, you have to. And no one's helping him. And uh, yeah, he's doing it all by himself. Very tragic. Um, but in 1967, George went to the Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were living in Texas somewhere. However, George and, um, his son-in-law, who was named Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her police were able to help them find the two men that she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxton said years later that doubts about that denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. So the next, the next part is about to be the most wild. So a black and white photograph of a man with dark hair leaning toward the camera slightly 
wearing a light-colored shirt with the collar open against a dark background, basically looking like a modern headshot. Um, the, photo- the photograph received by the family in 1967 um, was believed to be adult Lewis. Um, there was another letter that was received that year uh, brought the Sodders what they believe was the most credible evidence that at least Lewis was still alive. One day, Jenny found in the mail a letter addressed to her postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, with no return address. Inside was the picture of the young man, around 30, with features strongly resembling Lewis's, who would have been in his 30s if he had survived. On the back was written, Lewis Sauter, I love my, I love brother Frankie, and then like L L I L boys, and then A nine zero one three two or thirty five. The family hired another private detective to go to Central City and look into the missive, but he never reported back to the Sodders and they were unable to locate him afterward. The picture nonetheless gave them hope. They added it to the billboard, um, leaving Central City out of it in case um, any other published information uh, would cause Lewis to come to harm, and uh, put an enlargement of it over their fireplace. George admitted to the Charleston Gazette Mail that... The next year, the lack of information has been like hitting a rock wall and they can't go any further. He still vowed to continue, but he did say that time is running out for us. Um, We only want to know. If they did die in the fire, we want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. However, George Sauter died in 1969. Jenny and her surviving children except John, who never talked about the night of the fire, except to say the family should accept it and get on with their lives, continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. After George's death, Jenny stayed in the family home, putting up fencing around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended to the garden at the site of the former home. She would pass away in 1989, and the family finally took down the weathered billboard. Um, So the surviving Sauter children, joined with their own children, continued to publicize the case, and they wanted to investigate leads. They, along with some of the older Fayetteville residents, have theorized that the Sicilian Mafia had been trying to extort money from George, and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said they would be safe if they left the house. And they were possibly back in Italy if the children had survived all those years and were aware of their parents and siblings had survived too, the family believes they may have avoided contact in order to keep them from harm. But as of 2015, Sylvia Sauter Paxton, the youngest in the family, is the only surviving Sauter sibling who was in the house that night of the fire, and she says it's her early memory. 
she recalled that she was the last one of the kids to leave home. Blah. And her father often stayed up late talking about what might have happened. She experienced their grief for a long time. She still believed her siblings survived the night, and she assisted in the efforts that would find them and publicize the case. Uh, Sylvia's daughter said in 2006, she promised her parents that she wouldn't let the story die and she would do everything she could. I didn't look up whether or not Sylvia was still alive. That's her private business. (laughs) I didn't want to call that one out there. But in the 21st century, these efforts have come like to include basically what we're doing right now. We're talking about the, the children now. Um, yeah. Web sleuths, of course, and additional media coverage. Uh, the increase of the latter has led some to who have examined this case to believe that the children did, in fact, die in 1945. George Bragg, who's a local author who wrote about this case in a 2012 book, um, it was a compilation of unsolved mur- murders in West Virginia. He believed that John was telling the truth in his original account when he tried to physically awaken his siblings before fleeing the house. He allows that the conclusion still may not be correct. He says that logic tells you that they probably did burn up in the fire, but you can't always go by logic. However, it's just as likely that the children could have been trafficked by the Italian mob. There's no way to know, but perhaps a genetic genealogy is done, and the legalities would not be great. Um, But that's what I got for you. Yeah, that is such a, a sad story, especially... Like, I don't know. I feel like it's it's one that is probably never going to be more solved than it is now. Nope. I get you. Yeah. The the genetic thing might turn something up. But That's how they uh, caught the Golden State Killer. Yes. Great uh, advancement in crime solving technology. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, that's that's just so sad. Like my instinct is. Something fishy was going on. I agree. Um, I think it's totally possible that they could have been taken from the house. Mm-hmm. I guess it. I guess it does depend on the one the one brother's like experience. Because if he didn't see them in the attic, then nobody had seen them since the parents went to bed, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, so I don't know though. It's it's really hard for me to imagine them. You know alive as adults being aware of who they were and like still not contacting their family. Right. That's, that's really hard to imagine. I, yeah, I couldn't imagine that either. So that's why I don't think any of the theories that they were taken for safety makes any sense to me. The thing that makes the most sense to me and what I feel is the answer. And this is, my opinion, not anyone else's, is that they were abducted in the way of, like, 
one theory was extortion for money from the Sicilian mob, but that they were abducted and trafficked. Yeah. It, it happened back then. Just people didn't know about it at the the level that we do now. And it happens horrifically now. Yeah. Um, and because that's my theory, um, because there, there's no skeleton. And that's the number one thing that, honestly, I think I'm 100% sure they did not die in the fire. Yeah, so... One one thing I was thinking was that it seemed like the local authorities didn't do a very thorough investigation, which, like, already very infuriating. But oh you're just going to go poke around the fire and be like, oh, well, we didn't find anything, so bye. Um, but they did, a, they did a more thorough search later. Way later. Yeah. So. Like, years later. And they found bones that weren't the children's, but also... Jenny was right. Like, she didn't see anything, and she was there. Yeah. And I I think John has his response because he's questioning his experience. It was highly traumatic. And he's not sure. If... Yeah. How could you remember it clearly? No. And, and he, was a, he was pretty young at the time, too, right? I think like... he was in his early 20s. Ah, uh, well. No, but still, still that's... You will quite if you've been gaslit to like I don't know I don't know I don't know, like oh they're all dead they're all dead they're all dead for these reasons like he right so the fact that he later was like oh I think they died in the fire like I don't think that that is really indicative of I think that's like a way of processing grief right I agree. and it, like it makes total sense to me because this is like a terrible situation they're in where they don't know what happened to their kids. Yeah. And so if you could find something to cling to, to just be like, well, they're dead. And I know they're dead because of these reasons. Like, I, I imagine that would be a lot easier to, to process. Yeah. That makes sense. And that's also why I'm like, I don't think John even being like, I want it to be over. Can we just move on? Is even an unacceptable way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's more than acceptable when... especially it's so hard to just never have that closure, right? Well, and and they have like... to stand there and watch their whole... Yeah. Happy, like, happy Christmas. <laughs> and so... But because my strongest opinion is the child trafficking, I did want to talk about what we look at for child trafficking today. Because... In 1945, you could, in theory, what could have happened is what they heard on the roof was maybe the ladder or whatever. And those kids got stolen quietly. And um, then whatever was done to... Um, the power box to cause the fire. You know what I mean? Cause it's usually on the yeah. outside. It faces the outside of the house. Yeah. Um, so they'd get away with it. Right. And they're like, if they get out or if they don't like the kids, they'll be dead. It's fine. And I feel like 
so many missing children's cases, especially in those days, could have been in like situations of child trafficking. Yeah. And it has just gotten worse. And so I went to the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children, and we have talked about this before on the show regarding Morgan Nick and a couple, maybe a couple other episodes. I'm not entirely certain. I should have checked before I made that statement. But that's okay. I know specifically Morgan Nick. But um, I wanted to talk about quickly the what we're looking at in real life right now. So in 2019, the NCMEC, National Center, Missing and Exploited, Exploited Children, they assisted law enforcement and families with more than 29,000 cases of missing children's. Children's. Children. So case type, 91% were endangered runaways. 4% were family abductions. 4% were critically missing youth, young adults, ages 18 to 20. Less than 1% were non-family abductions, which are stranger abductions. Um, and 1% were lost, injure, injured, or otherwise missing children. So of the n- nearly 26,300 runaways reported to the NCMEC in 2019... One in six were likely victims of child trafficking. Um, so the NCMEC also participates in the Amber Alert program. They have a voluntary partnership between broadcasters, transportation agencies, law enforcement agencies, and wireless industries to activate an urgent bulletin in the most serious child abduction cases. And they serve as a secondary distributor to these alerts. And to date, a thousand children have been successfully recovered as a result of the Amber Alert program, and seventy-five, including seventy-five recoveries credited to the Wireless Emergency Alert program. So every time your phone goes off and you get annoyed to see an Amber Alert, just know that they have worked, and seventy-five children have been able to go home because of those alerts. Um, Also, the NCMEC's forensic artists have age-progressed more than 7,000 images of long-term missing children, and they've created more than 595 facial reconstructions for unidentified deceased children. The NCMEC is currently assisting with more than 691 cases of unidentified children's remains. And so far, it has assisted in 159 identifications. And that's huge. Could you imagine, like, you find a child and you don't know where they belong. You can't figure out how to find where they belong. And they they come in, they have their facial reconstruction artists, and they're able to put their face back together based on the bone structure and all of the things and details that are found with them. And 159 identifications that would not have been possible otherwise. That's incredible, in my opinion. It's so important. Because like I was saying, 
if you're in that that horrible situation i feel like the worst thing that can happen is you never get any closure at all yeah and obviously you're you're always hoping for the good news but not knowing is just i can't i can't even imagine what it's like yeah and i don't i honestly I know this sounds a little selfish. I don't want to imagine, and I don't want yep. any parent to have to imagine. Exactly. Uh, but so just such important work. Yeah. And unfortunately, parents do have situations where they do go through this, and that's why I applaud the work of programs like this, because when bad things do happen, because bad people are out there, there is somewhere to go and there's somewhere that people do care about your child. And for the fact that it's a human being, it's someone who can't take care of themselves the way that an adult can. And so they're there for them. And that's so amazing to have. So speaking of, we have a John Walsh who has been a champion for, children and having programs for children um after john and his wife revey lost their son adam uh there's team adam and they provide rapid on-site assistance in cases of critically missing children and they've deployed more than 1200 times the program was named after adam walsh and he was abducted and murdered um and he's the son of the co-founders of the NCMEC, uh, John and Revae. Team Adam has also provided, oh, also provides uh, technical assistance and outreach regarding long-term missing child cases and has assisted families, communities, criminal justice, and forensic professionals more than 10,900 times. Wow. Yeah. And the NCMEC has analyzed more than 17,600 attempted child abductions to identify trends and help develop safety tips for families. And I believe, like, working with law enforcement, um, they may have been the ones to drop the bomb on how stranger danger is deeply ineffective. Yeah. Which, I mean, that's something we talked about regarding the Morgan Nick case, just because it was relevant, even though she actually was stranger abducted, as far as we're aware. Um, But something that we deal with specifically in 2020 is cybercrime. And so the NCMEC also operates the cyber tip line, if you've heard of it, which I think... We, I believe you're around my age, uh, JJ, mm-hmm. um, grew up with basically as the advent yeah. of the internet, especially yeah. being accessible to kids of all ages. Um, just went rampant <laughs> with exploitation. So Cyber Tip Line is a national mechanism for the public and electronic service providers to report instances of suspected child sexual exploitation. So in 2019 alone, the cyber tip line received 
more than 16.9 million reports. Um, Wow. Yeah. And most of them went into one of these four buckets. Child sexual molestation, child sex trafficking, online enticement, including sextortion, and apparent child sexual abuse material. So 150,667 of those reports were from the public and 16.9 million were from electronic service providers. Since its inception, the cyber tip line has received more than 74 million reports, which I believe I have the date or the year that it started. Um, 74 million, man. It's... uh, Uh. I mean, it's a lot, yeah. It's incredible. Uh, unfortunate that that much crime is happening. But, but, like, we're not surprised anymore. But the no. thanks to the internet, we now know how despicable people really are. Yeah. There's no more hiding it. Um, but to further their mission and help reduce proliferation, the NCMEC has sent more than 336,000 notifications to electronic service providers um, regarding publicly accessible websites on what on which suspected child abuse material appears. So they have a child victim identification program, which helps and locates um, and basically tries to rescue child victims in the abuse of images, which has more than 315 million images and videos. And I think, like, on Law & Order SVU, you'll, like, see situ- like episodes or situations where they'll have a child, like a picture of a child in a situation, and they're like, no, we're going to find them. They're here in New York. Mm-hmm. And they'll go through the whole, like, story, but... The NCMEC also works on that, too. And in, two th- in 2019, reports to the uh, cyber tip line included 69.1 million files with 27,788,328 images and 41,288. And 816 videos, and then 89,053 other files. And I wanted to give you the whole number just so you could feel the impact on that. Like, that is a really long number. It is. Mm -hmm. So, with their help, law enforcement has identified more than 19,000 victims. And they've assisted with more than 173,000 requests related to helping locate non-compliant sex offenders. And in 2019, they responded to more than 10,700 reports regarding possible sex trafficking. And all numbers uh, provided reflect program totals since the inception, unless I noted it otherwise, which I believe I did. I think I did that. But just so you know, the Amber Alert began in 1996, and it was a program, and it's a program of the U.S. Department of Justice, and the NCMEC is just a secondary distributor. The Team Adam program began in 2003. The Project Alert 
program began in 1992. Cyber tip line began receiving reports in 1998. Um, and the NCMEC began formally tracking notifications to um, ESPs in 2010. And then, yeah. So I got my information from, just so I can stop forgetting this, <laughs> because I really do forget this a lot. An excellent article by Karen Abbott um, for the Smithsonian. It was called The Children Who Went Up in Smoke. Uh, the Missing Children uh, Haunts West Virginia Town. It was an NPR um, transcript I read. And then Associated Press, 11 Children Die in Four Home Fires from 1945. I was able to get my hands on a copy of it. Um and then Wikipedia, of course. And uh, Stacy Horn, sorry. Um, she had an article, sort of. It was like a blog post called The Long, Long, Long Solder Post. So that was my sources. So tell me what you think. What do you, what do you want to take away from either the story or those statistics? We can hit the statistics first if you want. I mean, it's it's really it's really sobering to to hear those statistics because you do. I mean, like, I am obviously aware that these sorts of crimes happen. I think, especially so, just being having an ear to the true crime community. But just the numbers are are so staggering. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, I'm glad that that people are doing that work. Um, you know, I'm glad in a way that, that we have the numbers because someone's keeping track of it and yeah, trying to do something about it, but it's, it's upsetting to think about, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I think we have those numbers, but how many cases did the police push off and yeah. ignore? Yeah. And it feels like there's, there's so oftentimes in these like missing children's stories, there is some sort of like police ineptitude, local authority ineptitude or some um, sort of level of ethnic bias. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also important to remember. Um, even, even in this case, yes. I know that we, we don't tend to think of Italian people as uh, discriminated against anymore, but that was but certainly not the case in 1945 at this point in history. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so this, I, I, I will admit when, when you were going into like his political views, I was like, how much could this like really impact, you know, the mm -hmm. story? Like you think like, is someone really going to do like a crime on his family because of his political opinions? But it's actually not that, that far fetched No, when you not. think about it. Um, especially when you're in a, a small insular community that was all, all, uh, other Italian immigrants and <sighs> yeah, you just, it, it makes me wonder, like, I wonder like just how unpopular he was in town and if that had an impact on why people weren't as willing to help him. Right. Yeah, but it's all 
the interesting part is he was on the right side of history. Right. And, uh, you know, it's also just sad that instead of having a beef with the man, they decided to be cowards and have a beef with the children. Yeah. Because I, I can't say that they died in that fire. And the person who was like conclusively they died in that fire because of John, blah, blah, blah. I can't. I can't. I mean, we we can't say that, but even if they had, it seems pretty, like, at the very least, it seems like it was an intentionally set yeah, fire, that, right? Like, that fire was not... Like, even if they did die, they were murdered. Yeah, <laughs> like, they were 100% murdered. And so. also, like, I don't think they... If they were not... Or taken from the house. Um, I don't think they survived long. No. And no, it doesn't. It doesn't seem likely to me that they made it to adulthood. Unfortunately. I know it is very sad, because on Christmas Eve, you know, this changed this entire family for generations. Yeah, yeah th- it really sounds like they didn't recover from it. I, and how could you? Honestly. Yeah. No, how could you? Especially, like, I'm not saying that not every child is important, but losing one child is one thing, but losing five at once. Yeah. At such a young age, that is an entirely different animal. Like, I can't begin to think how that mother was able to put, like, to pull herself together. And, like, I have to also, like... Shout out to George on this, but he seemed to be a deeply loving father. Yeah. To to pursue, like, every path like that is so understandable. I feel like we obviously had a lot of empathy for him. and, And you think, like, oh, you know, anyone would do that for their kids. But, like... Not quite. Not quite. Some of them murder their kids. Yes. And. So, so upsetting. But at the same time, like like, there is. Yeah. There's a way that we as individuals can make a difference and can do something for the children of today. And though the solder children unfortunately can't there's not much that like individuals who aren't trained can do there are things that you can do for children who are missing and if you feel so compelled is to read up on what's really going on in the United States because a lot of children are being exploited and they're being taken and um some things can be changed because this is too much. Like 26,000 children. That's a lot. That's a, that's a lot. I know a town that has less people than that. Yeah. I was scared of it. And I think that, you know, I've asked um, our listeners to have a lot of, things in mind and I watched this episode of Patriot Act 
which I'm very sad is no longer on Netflix. Well, I mean, it is, but they're not going to make new episodes. I really enjoyed it. Um, But Hassan Minhaj said that, like, it's okay to close tabs in your brain. You can't be hardcore passionate about everything all at once. But this is one of those situations. Like, I've asked a lot of our listeners to care about a lot of things. And it's hard when you've got a lot going on, etc. But I like to also think about, yeah, it must be hard when you're a person who suffers from all of these things. And this is your daily life. And so it is okay to close some tabs in your brain. And if this is a tab that you can't keep open, that's understandable. However, think about the children who suffer because of cowards who think it's okay to harm them. And think about the children who can't defend themselves or see try to see the best in others when the worst is standing right before them. And there's something to be done, like making sure children are safe and you know we're always walking around target or what ulta i don't know (laughs) places where kids can get distracted and it does it takes nothing it is free to just make sure that kid finds their trusted adult and i think that there's a responsibility on the community to do the same for adults, of course, but this episode is about kids. Um, to make sure that we take better care of kind of each other, you know? Yeah, I think that's that's really important in this time. It's so easy to get, like, compassion fatigue just because you're feeling so bad all the time. Um, yeah. But just making a conscious effort to be compassionate to other people, to make sure other people are okay. I feel like that can do, you can feel like it's not impactful, but for the person you're looking after, it could be the most impactful thing. Mm -hmm. And just putting that energy out into the world, I think is, is one way we can take care of each other and get through difficult times. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, who knows? If you ask the kid, like, are you okay? And they say, no, I'm scared or something. Are you going to walk away from that situation? Are you going to make sure they got their trusted adult? Or if you, like, hey, kid, what's up? Are you all right? And they're like, yeah, I'm good. Are you going to walk away feeling better that the kid's okay? Like, you never know. And I just, I think about it. I think about it way too often because I would rather I'd rather be wrong and keep an eye on a kid who's totally fine than walk away from a kid who is about to be in the worst situation of their life. Yeah. But I mean, call me crazy. I'm also a woman and I feel like it's socially acceptable for me to do that. But I don't know. There, there has to be a way for us to improve this situation 
also teach offenders not to offend. Punish child offenders harder. Yeah. Like. Definitely. I. Yeah, I can't even start. There are just. Yeah. There's so <laughs> many whole, justice whole other issues there. Yeah. But in regards to the Sonder children. I hope that they got to live a full life. I don't feel like they did, but I hope they did. Yeah. And I don't think they died that night. I don't know what your thoughts. You have anything? No, I agree with you. I don't think I don't think they died that night. I don't think they died in that fire. Um and I hope I don't know. I guess I I hope that they all knew how much their parents loved them because I think that's very clear from, from the actions they took and how hard they tried to find them. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so tweet us, let us know what you think. Like this is a very cold case. It's 75 years cold. So let us know if you think, and have other opinions than we do, or if you feel like there's evidence I missed and want to bring it up, by all means, you can tweet us at T-A-L-K-A-B-T-F-A-C-T-A-S-T-S, jeez, at Talk About Facts. If you missed that, there's an outro for a reason. And <laughs> also, feel free to email some stories in. This is number one of the Christmas Crimes Chronicles, and... I'm excited to do a few more Christmas crimes. So by all means, send me some, send me hilarious DMs that I can read out about me being a stupid bitch. And (laughs) maybe I'll think of another story about me being absolutely idiotic. And yeah, well, it's been a delight to have you, JJ. You're going to have to come back. I would love to. Because there's more Christmas, there's more crime, but in January, there's no theme, so it could be anything. (laughs) So, well, we're going to have to sign off. I think we're going to have to tell them that the cruise is over, and they're going to have to disembark. I don't give a fuck where their trade table is. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Ha ha ha.